Chantal, 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 Morning, church family. Good to see all of you. Um, today's reading is taken from Exodus chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 22, and we're reading to the end of chapter 16. I'm reading from the NIV. It's chapter 15, verse 22. Let me remind you that we are about to hear from our Father in heaven. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out in the, into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. 
On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it, what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath, that is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is, the, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron, to put the, the manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Omer is one-tenth of an ephah.
Um, these few chapters, uh, the second half of chapter 15, all of chapter 16, and into chapter 17, uh, really record for us quite a low point in the story of Israel and her relationship with Yahweh. There are three grumbling stories. The first comes in chapter 15, verse 22 to 27, where they grumble at Mara. And then chapter 16 is grumbling at the desert of, uh, what's it called? The desert of Shur. It's also called the desert of Sin. It's another word. It's not the same word as what you're thinking about. It's not that kind of sin. Um, it's kind of uh, the first, it's, it's also a word that is sometimes used of Sinai. Mount Sinai is sometimes called Mount Sin because of the first three letters. And so it's being used in that sense. And then in chapter 17, which we didn't read this morning, the first seven verses, is grumbling at a place called Rephidim. And then in the second part of chapter 17, God, God puts his faithfulness to a grumbling nation on full display as he rescues them again uh, from a military threat. And so I commend chapter 17 to you for your own reading in the course of the week or even this afternoon. So there are three grumbling stories. What is striking about these chapters is that Israel has just seen the wonders of the Lord in a way that few people ever have. Plagues, Passover, Red Sea, the Egyptian army being destroyed, they have seen those wonders, those signs in front of them. And in spite of all of that, Israel's response to God is one of doubt and unfaithfulness and muttering against him and grumbling against him. That is, Israel is marked by failure, even though she has been the recipient of really what must be called a blockbuster rescue, as we saw last week. Uh, there are three occasions in the wilderness where the Israelites grumble about their situation, and they are of such importance to the Bible story, they're so significant, these stories of grumbling, that they are commemorated and remembered for generations to come. Isn't that interesting? So not only is the great rescue of the Lord commemorated by an annual meal at the time of Passover, we saw that a few weeks back, but Israel's grumblings are commemorated by having whole towns named after them. In chapter 15, verse 23, we have Mara, and you'll see the footnote says bitter, so let's call it Bitter Boulevard. In chapter 17 and verse 7, there are two names, two towns that are named. The one is named Massa, which is testing town, and the other is Mirabar, which was quarreling quarry. If you'd taken your children on a road trip that, and they'd asked you why the towns had such odd names, you'd embarrassingly have to say, because that is where we were tested. There we quarreled, there we complained, there we were bitter. And this time it's the parents who were grumbling, not the children. That's new. I want to show you two things from this passage, two points, and then three applications for us this morning. The first point is that the Lord trains them to trust Him. Can you trust the God who rescued you to also provide for you? That's the question that uh, confronts us in this passage. 
what their complaining and their grumbling and their murmuring and their muttering shows is that after seeing all of the most dramatic and mind-blowing special effects and wonders that God has done in Egypt to rescue them, they don't think that they can trust God to sustain them after they have been rescued. Now that they've been delivered, God tests them. And I want you to see it for yourself. So look at chapter 15 and verse 25. Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. Uh, look again at chapter 16 and verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And so they are being tested by the Lord in the wilderness. This is, this is boot camp for them. This is training. And the Lord wants them to see that they can have every confidence that the God who rescued is quite capable of providing their every need. Israel can expect the Lord who delivered her from Egypt to sustain her in the desert, in the wilderness. And through that provision, they will know that I am the Lord. Look at chapter 16 and verse 11. These should be familiar words to us by now. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard them grumbling. I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you'll eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Do you remember those words? Those words were said previously, weren't they, to Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Said Pharaoh back in chapter 5. I'll show you. Plague after plague after plague. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so it's not just Egypt and Pharaoh that need to know who the Lord is. It is Israel who need to know who the Lord is. Pharaoh learned who the Lord was through judgment. Israel learned who the Lord is not just through rescue, but also through provision. I am the Lord. The first grumble comes in chapter 15 and verse 22, and it's about water. Um, coming from KZN, I can sympathize with their grumbles about water. The water system is in Etequini is hopelessly compromised at the moment, and they are scrambling to try and fix it. They travel for three days without water, we are told, and in verse 24, they grumble against Moses. In verse 25, Moses takes their complaint to the Lord, and the Lord shows Moses a log, he throws it into the water, and the bitter water becomes Red Bull for the Israelites, and they can drink it safely. It's quite embarrassing because in verse 27, after all of their complaints about the lack of water, they turn the corner, and there's a whole oasis with plenty of springs and wonderful water to drink. The second grumble has to do with food, which is really most of chapter 16. Uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 16, uh, it says, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It's an extraordinary response, is it not? 
How ungrateful for them to say that, just having been rescued from um, the misery of slavery. And so in chapter 16, manna is provided six mornings per week. In verse 14, it tells us it was probably like oats. And in verse 31, we told that it tasted like wafers made with honey, basically waffles for breakfast. Uh, perhaps a glimpse of the land that flowed with milk and honey, I guess. Manna, of course, becomes a very significant symbol of God's gracious and abundant provision for Israel in the wilderness. And so in verse 31 to verse 36, instructions are given that a jar of manna is to be kept throughout the generations as a reminder of God's provision. They kept the first jar in the Ark of the Covenant, and then in the tabernacle, and finally in the temple. They kept that manna for a thousand years as a reminder to them of the Lord's provision. Verse 13 in chapter 16 tells us that God provided for a balanced meal, waffles for breakfast, and quail for dinner. I've noticed that it's only posh restaurants that serve quail. I've never had one. I couldn't be bothered with all those tiny bones. Just give me the, just give me the rump. Posh chicken, God provides for them. Third grumble is again about water. This comes in chapter 17. But don't worry, they remembered the first time they grumbled about water that, that God provided, and so they trusted him. Oh, no, they didn't. Look at verse 3. The people were thirsty for water there. Chapter 17, verse 3, they grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? You know, doubting God once after the plagues and the Red Sea would have been irrational. Doubting God twice begins to look pretty hopeless. Doubting God three times is in verse 7 of chapter 17 called uh, testing the Lord. They called that place Massa and Marabah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Can you see that God is training the Israelites in something that we are not very good at? Well, maybe I should just speak for myself. I'm not very good at it. Daily dependence upon God, the God who has saved us and who provides all of our needs. God is training Israel to trust in him for his provision for her. The water is turned sweet the manna and the quail shows that the Lord's commitment to his people is not confined only to rescuing them from Egypt. His commitment includes providing for her in the wilderness as well. He's committed to rescuing his people, and he is committed to providing for his people as they journey towards the promised land. Do you think that has anything to do with us? Of course it does. For we are the people he has rescued and is accompanying as we journey towards the promised land, which for us is the new heavens and the new earth. You know, the New Testament primarily uh, links this, these events in the Old Testament to Jesus. Look at this verse that will be on the screen from John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 
the manna in the desert was a signpost to the true bread, says Jesus, which is me. You need to eat of me in order to be sustained as you wait on the journey. And then these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, where he says about this incident, they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and guess what? That rock was Christ. The God who delivered Israel is the God who trains Israel to remember that he is Israel's God, who cannot, doesn't only deliver, but also provides. Supremely, of course, he has provided Christ for us. Christ is our bread and drink. Christ is God's provision for us, for forgiveness and for life. In one sense, that is all you need. All you need is Christ. If you've got Christ, you can die. For the biggest problems in life have been solved. And isn't it true that Raul is experiencing that right now as we speak? The Lord was Israel's daily provider, day by day. You know, the lack of a sustainable food source would have been a constant reminder to Israel about her dependence upon God. Every day, their only guarantee was a gracious God for their sustenance. That's true food security, isn't it, though? Much more trustworthy than any United Nations accord. Here's the second thing. The Lord doesn't only train them to trust but he also trains them to obey. God has delivered Israel. Uh, they didn't. Interestingly, and very importantly, they did not have to obey before they were delivered. Their deliverance was out of the kindness, the unmerited kindness of God. Israel was entirely passive in that rescue. Do you remember last week those lovely words where Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord? The Lord will fight for you. You just have to be silent. That was how their rescue took place. But now he wants them to obey him. Their rescue is not contingent upon obedience. But because he has rescued them, they are to obey. That's how the gospel works for us. God doesn't save the good or the moral or the upright. He saves sinners and then he says, now be moral and be upright. Because you are already saved. You don't have to earn that salvation. But you do have to live in the light of it. And so the Lord tests them and gives them a command in verse 25 of chapter 15. And the command is, um, he threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them to put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Obey my commands, he says. Listen diligently. Do what is right. Give ear. Keep my statutes. He says it again in chapter 16 and verse 4. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my 
instruction, my command. And so verse 4 establishes a very important principle that God is training them to realize. They are freed from Egypt, not so that they can live as they please. Freedom is not doing what you want. What an important thing that is for us to take on board. They are freed from the rule of a wicked king by being brought under the rule of a righteous king. That's true freedom. Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want to do. That is a childish view of freedom. Uh, freedom is not lawlessness. It's not independence. My, my daughter, I should, I'm glad she's not here today. My daughter got her drivers on Thursday morning. It was a terrifying moment for us when on Thursday afternoon I handed her my keys so that she could go for a drive on her own. Freedom, but not lawlessness, which I was very happy to remind her about as she got into the car. Rightly understood, freedom is being able to do the right thing. That's what leads to human flourishing and to the good life. You don't free a goldfish by taking it from its bowl and throwing it on the carpet. For it to be truly free, it needs to be in its right medium, does it not? And so it is with us. Freedom is being ruled by a good and righteous king. The way to be freed from slavery is to be conquered by Jesus, by a better master. And so God wants his people to respond in obedience to him. I have to say this again because it's so important. Not in order to be delivered, they are already delivered. That's already happened without any prior obedience, but to show that they are the delivered to live life under their new authority, a better authority, a good authority. Chapter 16, God only gives two commands about the manner. Remember, he's training them to obey. There are only two commands. Don't collect more than you need, except for Fridays. On Fridays, collect double, chapter 16, verse 22. Then on Saturday, the Sabbath day, don't go and collect because there won't be any. Those are the only two commands that they get. How do they do with those commands? Well, in chapter, in verse 19 and 20, some try to store it, and it gets full of maggots. In, in verse 27, some go with their containers to gather more on the Sabbath day, and they find none. They really aren't doing very well, are they? God is training them to obey with those two simple commands. He wants them to obey him. He wants them to enjoy life. And the way to enjoy life is to listen to God. And so God establishes the Sabbath, a very, very important thing. A lot of time is spent on the Sabbath in the Old Testament. Sabbath breaking was such a serious offense in the nation of Israel that it's what got the nation exiled at the end of the Old Testament. The Sabbath was always what got Jesus in trouble with the religious rulers of the day. And I'm going to ask you to wait for next term when we look at the commandment about keeping the Sabbath day holy. 
uh, for me to say more about that. But I want you to notice something about the Sabbath day in this uh, story. Uh, Israel will not be deprived of manna if they obey God and rest on the Sabbath day. That's an important principle. He will provide for her even though there would be no manna on the Sabbath morning. You really can obey God knowing that he's able to provide for you. That's the, that's the principle. Obedience does not come at Israel's expense. She will be provided for, and so will you. God's commands are always good for us, and although we might be anxious about obeying them, we can trust that the outcome will be what is best for us. Do the right thing and trust God. I wonder if there is an area of obedience that you are struggling with. Perhaps it's a relationship that you know is displeasing to the Lord. Will you do the right thing and trust God? It's always the best thing, and it's always what's good for us. God's rule is good rule. God's commands are not like Pharaoh's. God's commands lead to freedom and flourishing and not to slavery and misery. You can trust him for the outcome, but they do need to be obeyed, his commands. And so let's be a people who obey God and trust him with the outcome, even if obedience is difficult, even if it means sacrificing something that's in your life that you know is wrong. Not in order to be saved, remember. We're not earning ourselves. We are already saved. We're already delivered. But God wants to train us to live under his good rule, a new and better master. I thought of three applications from this passage. I'm sure you can think of more. The first one that is really, in some ways, the most important one is to say, please, will you take the bread that satisfies if you've not done so already? Look at John 6, verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, says Jesus, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Please, will you take the bread that satisfies? Will you accept the Lord Jesus Christ if you've not done so this morning? Accept him into your life. Trust his death to bring your forgiveness. Appropriate the cross of Christ to your own life so that you can be forgiven and saved. Physical bread can keep the body alive, but Jesus keeps us alive spiritually. That is food that endures. Seek that. Pursue that. Take hold of Christ. I am what you need, Jesus says. And so take the bread that satisfies. He has the second application. Trust the God who provides. Uh, we are, I, I'm not very good at this. It's difficult to trust God on a daily basis. But do you think after all that he has done for us to save us, do you think that you can trust him to provide for you? And those who have been Christians for some time, when you look back on God's track record of provision in your life, you should be embarrassed to doubt him that he'll keep providing for you. It should make us red with embarrassment. 
his track record of provision for us and for our families is impeccable. We need to ask him to help us to trust him. Not trusting him, panicking, is a form of grumbling and discontentment. Jesus taught us, remember, to say to God, give us this day our daily bread. Wouldn't it be easy if we could stockpile it? Then I can trust the stockpile instead of trusting God. But that's not how God wants us to live our lives. He wants us to recognize our dependence upon him daily and moment by moment every day. We must trust the one who has already provided our salvation. Look at Romans 8. What a wonderful verse this is. He who did not spare his own son, salvation, gave him up for us all, salvation. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, provision? If you are a Christian, your father is sovereign both in salvation but also in creation. He saves us spiritually and he provides for us physically. Here's the third and final application. Accept the training. Accept the training. He rescued them. He provided for them. He trained them. He rescues us. He provides for us. And he is training us. And I want to show you just three verses that from the New Testament about this training. There's, again, there's a lot more that should be said. But first of all, discipline, training, is not punishment. So look at Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Son, though he was, speaking about Jesus, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Isn't that an amazing statement about Jesus? Jesus, the sinless one, the perfect one, learned obedience from what he suffered, from his training. Even Jesus was trained by his Father. Training is not punishment. Second point, all hardship in the Christian's life is discipline, is training. Hebrews 12, verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Discipline does not make you a child of God. It shows that you already are one. And so receive it. Receive the Lord's hardship in your life with gratitude, trusting him that he's training you. Hebrews 12 verse 8, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Israel's training came after she was rescued. The people of God cannot be all that God intends them to be apart from training, from discipline. It's unpleasant, but lastly, it is for our good. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, For they disciplined us, our fathers, that is, for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, I love this, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Did you need to hear that this morning? 
Lift your hands and strengthen your knees. God's got it. He's training. And he's training you because he loves you. Let's pray. Just a moment of a reflection for you perhaps to say something that is pertinent to God in the privacy of your own heart and mind. Loving Father, how grateful we are to you for this part of your word. And as we've reflected on it this morning, we want to cautiously and perhaps uh, unwillingly even say to you, please don't withhold your training from us. We receive it with gratitude in our hearts, even though it might be hard. We pray that we would be those who respond to our salvation by gladly obeying you, trusting that you can provide for us as we obey and that you are always doing the right thing in our lives. Comfort us during those hardships, we pray. But we pray, Lord, that we would not um, shrink back from them. We do pray that we would strengthen our knees and raise our drooping hands towards you. And we pray this for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Let's end our